Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, gentlemen, well, we promised a deep dive into the IFAB rules yesterday on our podcast. If you've not listened to that, go and give it a listen. Um, where we talked about Manchester United and PSG. But today we're going to talk about the ramifications and the fallout of the penalty that took place late at the end of the game because um, there seems to be a bit of confusion and misunderstanding about the rules and how they're applied and probably with good reason, Duncan. Yeah, I mean, there's huge confusion over handball. There always has been. And that's why IFAB, which is the the body which um, oversees the laws of the game, IFAB... um, International Football Association board. Um, it's made up of the, well, there's representatives from the Scottish, English, Irish and Welsh FAs because they established the rules in the first place. And then there's four representatives appointed by FIFA. Um, each year they discuss uh, the rules as they stand and uh, potential changes to them. And in recent years, they've made more and more um, radical changes to the rules and there, and there are quite a lot of seven eight um uh, changes to the rules coming in for next season um of which handball i think is going to be the biggest change to the game um and i think also i would expect it to be the most problematic um i think i i guess that having they, they haven't detailed everything as yet, but the detail that's come out so far suggests to me that this new handball rule might not um, last all that long and will need to be revised again uh, in the not-too-distant future because um, much of it is based around an idea that um, there is a, a, na- a silhouette around the body, a natural silhouette, um, David Ellery, um, one of the people involved in this talked about it after the IFAB meeting in, in Aberdeen um, recently. And he said, um, if the arms are extended beyond that silhouette, then the body is being made unnaturally bigger with the purpose of it, of it being a bigger barrier to the opponent of the ball. So they're saying that you can have your hands by your side and get hit by the ball and it will not be handball. It will not be given as a penalty or a free kick. However, if you move your arms outside that natural silhouette and the ball hits you, even if it's non-deliberate, a penalty or a free kick is going to be given. And I think it's not hard to see, one, the problems with that, in that, that you know, it sounds fine if you're talking about a standing football player. But when a player runs, his hands naturally go outside that silhouette. You, you don't ever see a player running with his hands um, by his side as if he's standing. And when a player jumps, as is what happened in the Paris um, Saint-Germain, Manchester United situation when the handball was given against Kimpembe, um, his arms move out from his body. So again, they move out from that uh, natural silhouette, as IFAB want to call it. And this is the key thing here. Once they're outside that natural silhouette, 
under the new rules, as as we we've, we've had them explained, they've not been absolutely specified as yet. But the explanation is that the, under the new rules, it does not matter whether the player has any idea um, or any intention of of uh, touching the ball, whether his hand is moving to the ball or away from the ball. If it hits his arms outside that silhouette, a penalty or a free kick will be given every time. So one. I don't think that makes logical, fair sense. And two, I think what we're going to see is uh, the more skillful forwards, uh, when they get into tight situations in the box, targeting opponents' arms. So they see them away from their body, outside that natural silhouette. Kick, to kick the ball against it, um, you could do it from very near distance. And as, as that new rule has been explained so far, they will get a penalty automatically. Um, which I think is going to have huge ramifications for the game. And, and I don't think they're going to be entertaining or good ramifications for the game. The third point on this, guys, is that fans who are unsure about the rule might go into IFAB's Laws of the Game document that's available online. And under handling the ball, they'll see the following text. Handling the ball involves a deliberate act of a player making contact with the ball with the hand or arm. That is at odds with what Duncan's just said, because... What a lot of people don't realise is that there is two aspects to refereeing. There is the laws of the game, and then there's refereeing guidance, which is mostly unpublished, which we can't scrutinise, which takes a key part in how the referee manages the game. In fact, I spoke to a referee in Scotland a couple of weeks ago, because this has been a big issue in Scotland, who said the guidance trumps all. Unfortunately, referees are employees um, and arbiters who have bosses and who have assessors and they, in order to keep their jobs, need to make the kind of decisions which they think their bosses and their assessors believe are the right ones. Whether that's actually the case or not is another discussion. I'd say that apart from the directives that you talk about, Johnny, there is the referee's natural interpretation or if a law has been broken. And if you like, that's the uh, the pre-VAR um, kind of uh, legislation. So rather than have a video referee, what you have is the interpretation of the laws of the referee in the match ongoing. And he makes a decision based on the interpretation of the laws of the game. So it's a very complex subject. I mean, I think that IFAB and... And everyone in the game has got themselves into a massive sort of vacuum here because you have to, first of all, define silhouette. But, and how do you even do that? My only um, knowledge of anyone trying to define silhouette is um, the uh, famous French philosopher René Descartes in his meditations, who talks about the human form and the silhouette. How, how in, many cars? How many cars? Just, just day, just day, <laughs> Descartes. And. Um, and, and I'm fairly sure that IFAB and FIFA are not going to refer to um, René Descartes when it comes to the, what formula is a silhouette. And, you know, as a big fan of sort of 50s crime movies and your chalk lines, when a, <laughs> when a dead body gets shown up and then the, the, the coroner's photographer turns up and takes a picture, it's like the arms are always in an unnatural position because he's about to be shot, this guy. <laughs> so anyone's facing a shot from a, as Duncan puts it, creative attacking player, 
what do they do with their arms? Do they keep them buzzed? I, I've been amazed in recent years where people put their arms behind their backs whenever they're on the box and they're facing a cross. Um, what Kimpembe did, I think there's, there is scope to say that his arm was in an unnatural position, given that it was, I don't know, half a metre from his body or, or maybe slightly less. And the ball had travelled quite a long way to, to hit his arm. Um, and that's, I guess, the definition upon which people will make decisions. But um, I think that IFAB have created, as I said, a problem for themselves here by defining um, this new handball law around something which doesn't actually exist, which is the natural silhouette. There's no such thing. It's like saying, how long is my shadow in the morning sunshine compared to the midday sunshine? It's just nonsense. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, so you, you define your natural silhouette. You have your argument about what a natural silhouette is. I think... As I said, already said, you've got a problem with running players and jumping players on that natural silhouette just from a, a logical point of view. But you're, also, you're just adding a new subject, subjective judgment. Where does the natural sil silhouette end? Where does it start? Is that within the natural silhouette or is it not? It's, the same, it's basically the same problem we have at present, except you're taking um, something that people are very good at judging. We're evolved to judge, which is intentionality. Um, out of the equation and turning it into this arbitrary um, FIFA, IFAB and FIFA say natural silhouette is what counts and it's whether it's inside that or outside that we'll judge whether it's a, it's a penalty or not. And this, this isn't the only thing that's changing here um, on handball. There, there are two things, which one of which I think most people will say is sensible, which is that no goals can be scored with the hand regardless of whether it's in the natural silhouette or not. So to try and counter the, um, the willy-bolly um, goal we saw in the, in the, for Wolves against Manchester City in the Premier League earlier in the season. Um, personally, I think there's a small problem with that. If, you know, I, I have the example where a player has his back completely turned to goal and a defender uh, kicks the ball off him in error and it hits the player's hand and goes in. I think that just... It, Justice that should be a goal because it's got nothing to do with the, the player who's being struck. But the, the one I think is going to be really problematic is not only no goal scored with the hand, no goal scored after gaining possession through hand or arm. So essentially, um, you're, you're then saying that we have a rule in handball, which is natural silhouette, but we're going to have a secondary rule. Um, if possession is gained, um, through an accidental touch of the hand inside the natural silhouette, will ignore the natural silhouette and give a foul. So you're complicating the judgment of an already complicated judgment. You've got those secondary judgments involved, different rules in different circumstances, and they want to have VAR, having a, a, a second subject, subjective decision with all the problems we've talked about with VAR involved in that process too. I, that's why at the start of this segment, I said... My prediction is that this handball rule will not survive many editions of the laws of the game and they'll have to change it again before it's too long. They're guilty of massively overcomplicating something which is relatively simple. Um, yeah. And that is that handball in a game called football, <laughs> funnily enough, is not allowed. Um, but what they're trying to do now is um, almost preempt any scenario whereby a handball, or whether it be deliberate or not, must be somehow brought into um, the adjudication 
of what happens next in the first, second, third phase of play, which is just not going to work. And as Duncan has explained, the complications here potentially are enormous. And if you're talking about games that decide league titles and Champions League titles or World Cups or everything else, who knows where it'll end? As I said before, but the, you know, how do you define a silhouette? Can you imagine you know, someone taking FIFA, again, we talked about the other day about Manchester City taking legal action against FIFA potentially or UEFA. Can you imagine a, a, you know, a national team taking FIFA to court over you know, the definition of a silhouette because they lost out somehow through their IFAB's new rules in a World Cup final? There, it is ad infinitum and it's crazy, absolutely crazy. Yeah. It reminds me, basically this reminds me of rugby. Um, I, you know, I, I used to watch rugby quite a lot when I was at university. Um, the, the thing about rugby was the rules were so always so opaque and always changing that they were always incredibly subjective and, and difficult to follow. And the, and the game, I think a lot of the, 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 the joy of the game gets lost in those continual rule changes. And, and these kind of uh, conditional rules dependent on circumstances very much like rugby and you know handball is difficult because the, like you say in the, 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 the kind of logical the, 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 the prima facie view would be okay we just let allow we just disallow any contact with the hand in football um, that makes it clear you can't touch the ball with the hand if it touches the hand it's a foul to the opposition team sounds great and then you get into that situation I talked about earlier Okay, then the attacking, clever attacking players start deliberately hitting the ball off the opponent's arm to win penalties and free kicks in difficult position, and you get a mess. That's why handball has always been deliberate intentionality involved to prevent that from happening and to constant to keep the game focused on what's important, which is skill and skill with the ball and skill at putting the ball past your opponent rather than kicking it against their hand. The other rule that raised eyebrows for me being in Scotland where I cover Rangers against Celtic old firm games is this idea that players should go off the pitch where they stand on the pitch. So if you're standing in the box, um, you have to go off the pitch at the nearest point when you're substituted. Now, immediately what sprung to my mind was it's an old firm game. Um, You've been involved in a number of contentious incidents. Uh, It's at Parkhead and you're a Rangers player. And you have to walk around the track in a game that is extremely volatile, extremely passionate atmosphere. Ian, you, you know the old firm theatre well. Surely a danger. Well, not just in the old firm, Johnny, but all over the world. In you know, Liverpool, Manchester United, in Fenerbahce, Galatasaray, Inter versus AC. Um, you have many, many derby games and, and indeed um, volatile football matches even just from results, never mind history, um, where this is going to cause problems. Unless um, you know they can guarantee the security of a player who has been substituted and has to leave the field at the nearest point of entry, then this should not be in place. It's, quite, it's as simple as that. We've seen numerous um, examples recently, even just in the Sheffield derby um, this, uh, this week, where a coin and a bottle was thrown at a player he wasn't. He was just taking a throw in. Um, now, I just don't understand. I understand the the gain which IFAB wishes to um, get from terms of time wasting and players taking longer than they should be to get off the pitch. But we already have um, an answer to that, and that is the referee 
sets his stopwatch from when the substitution is about to be made, and then he times the substitution and how long it takes. If he, he gives a standard 30 seconds, the referee does, on for every substitution made into added time. If a substitution takes longer than that, then it is his um, ability and his um, it's at his decision-making process for, in order to increase that time um, if he feels that a player has left um, even more slowly than the 30 seconds that he is standardly given to allow him to leave the field. So, But the security aspect is a whole different dimension to how this can play out. And football is a very passionate game and... You know, you cited Celtic Rangers as an example, and we've seen um, numerous incursions on the pitch where players have been put in danger, sometimes less than than more, um, from fans running on the pitch. Now, if you make a player from one particular club walk an entire circumference of of the stadium almost to get back to the tunnel, then you're increasing the risk upon him being attacked or at least being abused. Um, people coming out from the stand to try and get get at that, that player as well. As I said, so unless security um, is addressed here, then I just don't see how this can be beneficial when we already have the stipulation of time being added on for substitutions um, for referees anyway. It just seems to me to be a kind of, well, why, why are you going to meddle in that? Um, because the referee still has the the ability to add that time. And if anything, what IFAB and FIFA should be doing is saying to the referee, you have free reign, not just 30 seconds. You can add as much time as you want. You set your stopwatch because we're all your two watches. Set your stopwatch for when the player, um, when the whistle goes and the player's number comes up, just set your watch. And if it's under 30 seconds, then fine. If it's 45, 60 seconds, then you add the extra 30 seconds. That's where I am with this. I'd rather not have players put in the potential danger of walking around um, hostile stands and rather have the referee protecting them and protecting the um, integrity of the game by adding the correct minutes when it comes to added time. I I agree. I think this is another example of IFAB uh, bringing in what seems a sensible rule change without properly thinking it through. Referees already have two sanctions here. They can um, book a player who's time-wasting coming off the field, um, potentially um, turning that into a red card and giving a suspension for the next match, and that they can add time on, as as Ian has mentioned. That should be sufficient. Um, I just wonder if the the attention to um, time-wasting over uh, players leaving the field is is a response to um, the fact that they've Manage to slow games down and add time unnecessarily onto games, and an increasing amount of unnecessary t- time being added onto games as the system is being used by the introduction of VAR. Um, and this is kind of a, a sort of half-hearted remedy to say, okay, well, we're, we're losing time to our our wonderful new technology, which gets 99.35% of all decisions correct. So we'll have to um, take a bit of time off from something that people don't like, which are um, substitutes taking their time to get off the field. Okay, guys, Johnny, we're... Johnny, just before we, we end this subject, can I just say to our, our wonderful listeners, um, for Q&A next Wednesday, tell us the rules you would like changed by IFAB. And I'm going to give you an example. I don't want to see players booked for taking their shirt off and celebrating. I think that's wrong. 
Um, that's a yellow card offence. I don't see how it's offensive to anyone unless the player is particularly fat. Ian, I'm going uh, to stop you there. See when I see Cristiano Ronaldo taking his top off, it does offend me. <laughs> that, For the other reason. I, I see my wife's reaction. It, it offends you or it mentally disturbs you, Johnny? Both, Duncan, both. <laughs> Manchester United against Arsenal. One of the great Premier League fixtures is taking place on Sunday. It's fourth against fifth, both battling it out for that Champions League place. Duncan, how do you see it going? Well, um, Arsenal play Europa League uh, Thursday night, so uh, they'll have less recovery time for the game, which is going to be helpful uh, for Manchester United, who've gone through, obviously, a very difficult um, testing European tie themselves on the Wednesday night. Um, United are clearly shorter bodies. Um, uh, they wonder if they, they might have lost um, uh, additional players after the win in Paris. Um, we saw how Solskjaer approached the, the game um, earlier in the season against Arsenal and that was very much a um, counter-attacking strategy um, using pace in, in the attack. Um, and at, what at that point was a, a, a surprising formation with um, Jesse Lingard playing in behind two forwards. Um, how that caught Arsenal out and they scored early. Um, I think. I think it, it's. I think it's a game of margins again. I think it's uh, whoever scores the first goal um, are going to have a huge advantage to it. Um, I think United will be very much targeting getting that first goal because they are a team who look a lot more comfortable against stronger opponents um, sitting back and playing on the break um, and using their pace. Um, but, yeah, it, it, should be a, it should be an interesting game to watch. The last one was a good game to watch and hopefully we get another entertaining match this weekend. I do think the momentum's with Manchester United um, after what's happened in Paris on Wednesday night. Um, I also expect two or three players maybe to be available who weren't available on Wednesday night as well, obviously Pogba being the most um, significant of them after serving his European ban. Um, and for that reason, I I think United have got the advantage here. Under Solskjaer, they've already come to London and beaten Chelsea and Tottenham and Arsenal in the FA Cup. And I think they've got a mentality about them which is better and more consistent than their rivals. And I mean Arsenal in this. And it's right to say, Johnny, that it's been these have been titanic battles over the years, and none more so the Fergie and Wenger years, especially during the noughties, as it were. Um, I was very privileged to be at a lot of those games, but none more so than the one where um, Vieira took issue with um, Gary Neville at the back of the uh, when the teams were coming out of the old Highbury Tunnel. And uh, Roy Keane got wind of it and then and challenged Vieira to a fight on the pitch, which was just sensational, um, and was uh, the the central subject of the of a documentary. I think it was like two or three years ago now, where they talked about the rivalry, and it was immense. The rivalry between those two teams they came first and second year in year out. Um, Arsenal and and, and Manchester obviously got the better of of the titles in terms of um, victories, but it was. It was a, a, a very visceral time um, in English football to to be living through and to be reporting on, and it was it was a wonderful, wonderful um, occasion when Arsenal and Manchester United met. Uh, 
I remember referee telling me he was now retired and saying whenever he got an Arsenal Man United game um, on his schedule, he would um, have to go um, basically into a dark room and decide how he's going to approach. You know that the um, referees go into each dressing room and say what the most thing that they're going to be punishing or whatever during that game and everything else. And this particular referee said there was no point in telling them anything because they would just go and do what they liked anyway. It was one of those. It was part of that fixture. So um, I think, unfortunately, we've lost that rivalry with Arsenal's demise as title contenders. And you could argue the same for Manchester United in the last five years. But um, it doesn't mean to say we won't get a, a great spectacle on Sunday um, in terms of the way the game goes. Because fourth place or top four is a massive, massive um, initiative in terms of uh, and motivation for both clubs uh, to reach uh, for next season. And there's no guarantee, obviously, that either United will win the Champions League, therefore qualify automatically, or that Arsenal will win the Europa League and therefore qualify for the Champions League. So um, I think the, the fight for the points on Sunday is going to be great. Okay, it's time for the quick fire round now. And in the spirit of um, Ian's nostalgia there, we're going to look back across uh, the Premier League era to find the best unified team of uh, Arsenal and Manchester United. I, I think unified is going a bit far there, Johnny, given what you're saying about Vieira <laughs> and Keane. The dressing room <laughs> might be interesting in the first few games. That's for sure. So how we're going to do it is Ian's got a team, Duncan's got a team, they're each going to give me their picks and I'm going to decide if those picks are different. We're playing in a 4-2-3-1 formation. Ian, I'm going to let you go first. Who's your goalie? Um, I guess no question here. And I, 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 In the spirit of Jose Mourinho, I predicted Duncan's going to say the same thing. Um, David De Gea, for me, has been the outstanding goalkeeper in the Premier League, um, closely followed by Petr Cech in the last uh, 20 years. Uh, and so for De Gea, for me. Well, um, Josie McGarry's got that one wrong. Um, my goalkeeper choice um, is Edwin van der Sar. Um, why? Because I think Edwin van der Sar is the best all-round goalkeeper the Premier League has had. Um, he's not as flashy as De Gea. He doesn't make as many saves as De Gea. I don't think he was as cap- he's as capable of making the kind of uh, almost unbelievable reaction saves that De Gea makes. But what Van der Sar was much better at was organising a defence, coming off his line to take balls either in the air or with his feet. And I've always liked goalkeepers of that type who um, you actually don't notice their best work because their best work stops chances from even happening. They don't have to make as many saves. Van der Sar was eminently capable of making good saves on top of that. So I would have him ahead of um, De Gea. First of all, I'm disgusted that I didn't get to make my David Seaman kept a lot of clean sheets joke. <laughs> We're not. And I'm not disappointed at all. Se- secondly, are we honestly saying those two goalies are better than Peter Schmeichel? Oh, I definitely. I'd, I'd definitely say that, yeah. Okay, right. Well, the McFarlane call on this one is Edwin van der Sar. He's better with the ball at his feet and starting off attacks. Well, our goalkeeper is Edwin van der Sar, much to Mr. McGarry's chagrin. But we shall move on to left-back. Chef. Oh, sorry, I thought Duncan would get the chance to go first on this one. But well, we're, going to stick, we're going to stick to the... Oh, we're going to stick to the programme, OK. Yeah. Uh, I'm very torn here, um, I have to admit, um, because I think Patrice Evra is definitely one of the best who has played probably the best, maybe the best left-back Manchester have had in the Premier League year. But I think 
also Ashley Cole for his ability to both defend and attack with equal brilliance is someone who should be absolutely considered in this. And I know this is a United versus Arsenal combined 11, um, but Cole went on to um, both progress and win more trophies with Chelsea as well. And not, well, that doesn't actually count. I, my vote goes to Ashley Cole. I, I agree with Ian. I think we've got not just the two best of these two teams to choose from. I think we've got the two best left-backs of the Premier League era to choose from in Patrice Evra and Ashley Cole. Um, I think I love Ashley Cole as a footballer. I think he had a very unfair rap um, from fans and uh, from a lot of the press for a lot of his career. But... Um, uh, and I'll, I'll admit a personal bias here because Patrice Evers is a player I've, um, I've interviewed several times and uh, I think he is an amazing character, very enjoyable person to spend time with. Loves a chicken, th- Duncan. Loves a chicken. Uh, yeah. <laughs> first, uh, and a first... song. And a chicken song. If you, if you read my first interview with Patrice Evra, he tells a fascinating story about how he played in the Champions League semi-final against Chelsea uh, with chicken... Um, stuck down his socks and underneath his boot um, to protect an injury he'd had and he'd he'd picked up in the first leg of the tie um, and would have made it impossible for him to play. And he he tells the story in in very much his style, talking about how at the end of the game he he took the chicken out and it was cooked. (laughs) It was so hot. If it's not ducks, it's chicken. There's lots of foul play here. (laughs) That's what happens when you have McFarlane in charge of any podcast. <laughs> Indeed. Um, but I, I'm going to go for Patrice. Um, I think for that added element he had as a leader, um, there's no coincidence that he was one of Sir Alex Ferguson's absolute favourite players. Um, and one of the reasons he was one of Ferguson's favourite players was that he got exactly what Ole, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has got to his advantage as manager, which is the history of the club and the attitude of the club and the way players should behave on the pitch. And Ferguson used that to communicate that to players coming into the club, that Patrice was an example to them and they should listen to him in how important it is to um, behave in a certain fashion and play in a certain fashion at Manchester United. So I, I think that just just nips him ahead of Ashley Cole for the left-back slot. Um, oh, this is a really difficult one because I, I agree with you both. I think these two are fantastic players. Um, I'm going to go with Ashley Cole. Uh, I think defensively, he was absolutely world-class. And in the golden era of uh, English football that is often referenced, I actually think he was the one player amongst them that was genuinely world-class, that could have played in Italy, could have played in Spain at the top level and been really comfortable. So I'm going to go for Ashley Cole. I'll tell, I'll tell Patrice he's got to put a duck down his sock next time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Ian, who's your centre half? Uh, forgive my um, sort of sense of, uh, I don't know, uh, nostalgia here, but um, Tony Adams for me was, is and is one of the great, great sort of central defenders um, in the history of the game. He was absolutely um kind of i don't know uh he 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 in absolute he kind of um so i'm gonna start again on this one John, sorry. 
<laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Sorry, because I, I want to say about, yeah, so I'm going to start again. Okay, right. Um, forgive my nostalgia, but Tony Adams for me is one of the, the great figures uh, in terms of central defence in the English game, not just in the Premier League era, but um, if you judge it beyond that, he encapsulates the um, bulldog spirit, which many people dislike, but he would rather take the player out than allow him to go through. But at the same time, he had um, a remarkable ability um, to read the game and see an attacker coming to him. Not only that, I think he was very underestimated in terms of his passing ability and his range. And um, one of the greatest moments for me of watching and reporting on English football has to be when Arsenal won the double um, and uh, he scored the fourth goal against Everton by going up front and taking down the ball and then just, just nicking it past the goalkeeper. It was fantastic. And uh, apart from anything else, he was an inspiration and a leader despite his personal problems off the pitch, despite some bad habits off the pitch. He always turned up and... Um, yeah, he was. Um, I think he's still one of the great characters as well. So for me, Tony Adams would have to be in the the back four. I think um, I'm going to go for another captain as as one of the centre backs here, and I'm going to go for Rio Ferdinand, um, leader of the Manchester United team um, that won so many titles. Uh, incredibly quick, um, great passer of the ball, kind of a I think one of the first modern centre backs, certainly in the English game. Um, and I think that's the reason Ferguson bought him for so much money at a young age and made him a uh, central point of his defence for such a long period of time. Um, and, yeah, all-round centre-back in an era when very few teams had all-round centre-backs and uh, and one of the best the Premier League seen. Ian, give me another centre-half because I'm going to pick a partnership. OK. Um, Nemanja Vidic for me because uh, during his time at Manchester United... He was the red wall. Um, Ferguson put his absolute faith and trust in him that whatever needed to be done to block uh, an opponent, to stop a goal, to prevent anything which would um, put United at a disadvantage, Vidic was the man. And I remember speaking to some Chelsea players who were talking about Bronislav Ivanovic being similar to um, to Vidic in terms of his commitment, his absolute um, faith in his own ability it, that you know whatever happened on the pitch he felt he could deal with. And um, Brani, as he was known, um, said, "Who do you think I learned it from, Nemanja?" And so for me, Vidic and Tony Adams would be the perfect partnership in central defence. Okay, Duncan, who's your centre? I'm not. I'm not going to make it any easier for you, Johnny. You're still going to have to make that decision because I, I, I have Vidic as, uh, as my other, as my uh, destroyer defender in that partnership um, of, of Ferdinand and Vidic. Um, so you're going to have to make your choice between Rio and, and Tony Adams. I'm disappointed. Yap Stam's not in there, guys, because he would have been my first pick. Um, well, do you know what? He, Yap Stam gets my vote for the best, one of the best songs about <laughs> Yap Stam. What about his quote? The greatest quote in the history of English oh, football by Gary yeah, Neville. Yeah, I mean, okay, that's been well worn, but you know the, <laughs> you know the, you, you know, you do know the song, don't you? 
No, I, I would like you to sing it for our transfer window. I'm not going to sing it, but I will see it. Um... <laughs> Come on, Ian. <laughs> I'll put a wee bed underneath it, a wee bed of music. <laughs> no, I, no, I can't do it. <laughs> it, end, it, ends, it ends in the wonderful try a little trick. Hear me, look a dick. Yep, yap, yap, Stan. <laughs> Brilliant. That was, you did kind of sing it. Okay, I'm going to go for Ferdinand and Vidic, boys. I think that's the best partnership because, as you guys have eloquently already stated, Adams was actually pretty good as a ball-playing defender as well as being a good just general defender. But Ferdinand was terrific at bringing the ball out, also had a bit of pace, complements Vidic perfectly. So as a, as a partnership, I don't really think you can do an awful lot with that. You have to pick those two. Tony Adams, great player, but I'm going with uh, Ferdinand and Vidic. We move on to right back. May I suggest that we try and do this a little bit quicker than we're doing it at the moment? We it's could not be here all night. Round, is it? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not. It's not. Okay. Right back. I think we're giving it due kind of um, diligence, though. I had to yes. say, Johnny, um, because it is a big, big kind of uh, statement to make. It's a monster. Uh, you know, between these two teams. Anyway, I'm wasting time. Um, for me, Lauren uh, is right back. Um, hard as they come. Uh, wonderful defender. Also a leader on the pitch, a leader off the pitch, someone who I think so Arsenal through many difficult games, especially um, in the seasons that they won the title. Uh, he was just an absolute inspiration to other players, despite the fact he himself was a very quiet and unassuming individual. Until one night in Trondheim, when they had drawn nil-nil, um, I witnessed um, him go up against Patrick Vieira because Lauren had made some disparaging comments about how the midfield had played in terms of feeding the uh, offence, and Vieira stood up to him. And when Lauren stood up to Vieira, Vieira cowered like a small child. And that was the only time I ever saw Patrick Vieira do that. So my vote goes to Lauren because respect, man. Yeah, I, I, um, I think right-back's probably the hardest slot in this team. I don't think there's absolutely outstanding um, options as we have in every other area. but um, So I think it came down to Lauren, possibly Bakari Sanya um, and Gary Neville. And I think Lauren is the, gets the nod because he was the right back of the Invincibles team. Um, and uh, so he was part of the defence that went through an entire season without losing Premier League game. So I would have him ahead of uh, the shop steward. OK, listen, this is, this is the easiest one that there is now, because we've got two ball-winning midfielders required here. Should, should we just go straight to the uh, three attacking I, midfielders? I, I think we should just move on. Are we going to go against the green and pick anyone other than Keenan Vieira here? Not for me. Yes. Uh-oh. Doctor's Uh-oh. in the house. OK, Mr Castles, give us an option. Uh, Paul Scholes. I think, I think with uh, the defence we've got here, we don't need to... Uh, uh, destructive midfielders. Um, so, oh, Vieira was more had... than that, Duncan. Vieira was more yeah. than destructive. So we... Indeed, and Kini is as well. He scored a lot of goals. That's why I would have Vieira and Scholes as the combination, um, rather than Roy Keane and Patrick Vieira. I'm not leaving Roy Keane out of this team. That's that is just not happening. Impossible. Are you are you leaving Are you leaving Paul Scholes out of this team? A player who was considered by most 
uh, international yeah. rivals as the best English player of his generation. And I don't think he's going to get in this team otherwise in a 4-2-3-1 formation. That's, no. his, that's his natural position, centre midfield. Duncan, I'm, going to, I'm going to do something controversial here. I'm going to leave out Patrick Vieira. Your argument is a very good one for the balance of this team. Hang on. What, Duncan, you... Duncan proposed Vieira and Scholes, you know, you know, overruling him. He's allowed to do that. He's putting Keenan ahead of, uh, yeah. of uh, Vieira and Scholes, Scholes in as the, as the balance. Correct. I, I do see what you're saying. That is an extremely solid defence. So two screeners, and I know they were more than that, but two screeners in there seems a little bit negative when you've got a player of the quality of Paul Scholes. And we know that the, the attacking players that we're going to put in here are going to be incredible. And if, if you've got Scholes in there, you've got a, a player that can find them with his long-range passing. So, Ian, any last words before I... I, I, no, no, I, I listen, I wouldn't disagree in the sense that, you know, in Scholes' pomp, he played in a 4-4-2 with Keane in the middle. And Keane was the destructive midfielder and Scholes was the creative one. So... Yeah, I, I, I don't have any complaints about that. I just think if you're trying to get the best combination of the best players, Vieira and Keane have to be in there somewhere, even if it's just for a dust-up. Is, <laughs> is, is there an argument to play schools at number 10, Duncan? Not with the uh, talent available. Not with the talent available, it's not, it's not even going to happen. Well, tough decisions are being made here, I think. Right, OK, left midfield then, or left wing? It's got to be Ryan Giggs for me. Um just, yeah, I don't think I even have to explain that decision. I think he just was wonderful with the ball at his feet and created uh, um, more chances than any player uh, in his generation, made more appearances for Manchester United as well uh, in the same time and, you know, always was there to score goals and, and inspire others. Uh, he's just, you know, one of the icons of that generation. Duncan? Yeah, I think Ryan Giggs has to be in the team and I think you have to put him on the left wing um, and move uh, someone else who's quite good to the right wing to accommodate him. OK, who's going to be on the right wing then? Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo for me. Yeah, agreed. Can't be anyone else. Um, he's got a lot of obviously competition from David Beckham, but Cristiano did a lot more than Beckham did Beck's for all his glamour, fame and success, was a little bit restricted to delivering the ball and to set pieces, whereas Cristiano always, you know, he developed immensely at Manchester United and um, became the player that we saw at Real Madrid because of the coaching he got, because of the encouragement and freedom that he was given by Ferguson um, to score goals and provide assists. So for me, um, Ronaldo's got to be right side of the three. Okay, number 10 now. I'm hoping you're going to remember Dennis Bergkamp amongst this. Remember, yes, but... Um, and and I, think, I think, you know, obviously there's a good argument, a very good argument for having Dennis Bergkamp in there. But um, given who the centre-forward has to be, then if you want to get Wayne Rooney in this team... He's going to have to be the number 10. And uh, Wayne Rooney, although his career went into stark decline, um, I think he deserves to be in the, the combined Arsenal-Manchester United team for um, the majority of what he did in his career at Old Trafford. So I'd have him at number 10. 
Sorry, can't have that. It's got to be James <laughs> Bergkamp. One of the greatest players I have the privilege to see. I'd love to have seen George Best play. I'd love to have seen um, Pele play. I'd love to have seen so many different greats. But I was lucky enough to see Dennis Bergkamp play. And he is a genius. An absolute genius with the ball at his feet. I think he does overtake Rooney in terms of both his skill, intelligence, his knowledge and ball-playing ability. Um, I know what you're saying, Duncan, in regards to Rooney, um, although I don't see why we have to shoehorn him into this team, even if he's Manchester United's greatest goal scorer. I think Bergkamp, you know, I think if you ask Wayne Rooney, are you better than Dennis Bergkamp? You'd probably say, nah. Yeah, Wayne Rooney's probably a little bit too ugly for this team as well. We've got to think about our Instagram presence. <laughs> As I said, Woodward speaking. <laughs> if, you're, if you're talking about social media presence, then it has to be Wayne Rooney in the team. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, I'm going to go for Dennis Bergkamp. I've made my feelings clear on that already. I think probably Duncan's got the rational choice if you look at the statistics of their careers. Uh, but for me, Dennis Bergkamp was just a Rolls Royce of a player. Absolutely gorgeous to watch. Some of the most incredible goals that you you'll ever see in world football were scored by that man. So I'm going to stick him in there. And I think it's important to get a bit more of an Arsenal balance because we're quite Man United-centric in this team so far. So for all those reasons, I'm going to go for Bergkamp. Now, the big question, who's going to be the number nine? Well, it's, it's actually the number 14, isn't it? It's Thierry Henry. Um, I don't think... I thought, you were, I thought you were saying Ian McGarry was going to be the number nine. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Some people would say that could have been the case. It's the biggest call since he substituted Maradona <laughs> thirty years ago. By, by some, by some, you mean one person would say that? <laughs> yeah, the one in my head. <laughs> the several in my head. No, no, I think I, I don't think we can go past Thierry Henry for. Uh, this is my obviously choice, but Thierry Henry for me is the consummate striker. He could play right, left side, come in, score goals, free kicks, headers. Brilliant with the ball and, and just mesmerised defenders when he had the ball at his feet. They didn't know what to do. I saw him score so many just outstanding goals. And I also had some wonderful run-ins with him as well because he's quite a feisty character. And uh, uh, we'll do a programme on that, obviously, as well later. But um, no, for me, Thierry has got to be the striker of the Manchester United Arsenal Premier League era. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's, I don't think there's an argument with it. You know, you see, I built my attack around getting Thierry Henry in there, and it's it's simple. You give given a choice of all the forwards, and I, I think you, you can actually, you probably can go and say all the forwards who played in the Premier League full stop and say Thierry Henry would be the choice, not just the Arsenal um, and Manchester United forwards. Um, good argument for Didier Drogba. But Thierry Henry, I think, is the best, and 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 the best to watch, probably too. And yeah. a wee, I, I, Duncan had a small, I, not a wobble, I'd say, but I loved Ruud van Nistelrooy for his one-on-one finishing. Um, I thought he was one of the best one-on-one players to get in there, but he just doesn't touch Thierry in terms of all-round play. Yeah, Henry is just a sensational player, and and his numbers as well. So. Uh, and consistency, I think, through his through his Arsenal career too. It has to be him. Okay, well, that's one hell of a team that we put together there. I don't think they would have much trouble in dispatching um, 
almost anyone in world football at the or, moment. Or, 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 as I would say, either of the Manchester United Arsenal sides that are going to play this Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> That's for sure. Even now. Um, so we've got a goalkeeper, Edwin van der Sar. We've got uh, Ashley Cole left-back, Virich and Ferdinand in central defence, Lauren at right-back. In front of them, we've got a midfield of Roy Keane and Paul Scholes, and then an astonishing front four of Giggs, Bergkamp, Ronaldo and Henri. It really is quite something. Well, we're going to leave you there. That's the end of our Friday podcast. It's time to wrap this up. Um, Fear not, we're going to be back on Monday, as usual, to fulfil all your podcasting needs. To continue the debate, we are all on Twitter. We obviously have our own Transfer Window official account at Transfer Podcast. If you want to follow us individually, I'm at Johnny R. McFarlane. Duncan is at Duncan Castles and Ian is at Garbo SJ. If you like the podcast, and we know thousands of you do, give something back by popping onto iTunes and giving us a five-star review as this helps us get to as many listeners as possible. Until Monday, thanks for listening.